Okay, well good evening, welcome to Modern Road Church this evening, welcome to Equip. This is our third Equip, I think, this, this academic year. And tonight we are looking at the topic of, can we trust the Bible? And we have our very own expert, Nelly, who is an Oxford student, so she's up at the Oxford Centre of Christian Apologetics at Wycliffe Hall. And she's actually been doing some research on this topic recently, so we thought we'd get her along to tell us what she's been doing. Um, so, over to you. Hi, everyone. Um, it's a joy to be here and discussing with you this very important topic if you'd, uh, because of just how big the Bible is, even if it's just as a best-selling book, you know. So, we're going, so we're going to talk about whether we can trust the Bible, but before we get into it, I think I'd like to... Um, I'd like you to discuss, in, I mean, in twos or threes, just where you're seated, some of the objections you yourself may have or the objections that you have heard against the reliability of the Bible. If we could just do that for a few minutes and then we can hear them so that we try and respond to them as I go through my talk. All right, I think we've got a big enough problem to deal with as it is we can get started. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to speak about this thing, and I will try and interject. I've, I've, I've covered quite uh, a number of some of the issues that have been raised in the talk, but I'll try and include the ones that I hadn't included because I mean we've got a limited time period, so I prepared a talk covering certain others. If at the end of the talk we haven't addressed the question that you have in your mind, we'll have another ten minutes to to deal with that, or just ten minutes for a reaction. To what I'm going to say. All right. So, um, on April 22nd, 1983, a German newspaper called Stan issued a press release announcing what it promised was the most important historical event of the last 10 years. It had discovered the personal his diary of Adolf Hitler. Maybe some of you are around to, to hear that news. Uh, a massive multi-volume work spanning the years 1932 to 1945. So apparently this... Um, this document had been had been discovered in April of 1945 after an aircraft crash, and somebody had kept it. And in 1983, had released this diary to the world. And you can imagine the excitement and the speculation that this bit of news brought uh, to the world. What did a man such as Hitler write in his, his in his in his diary? What was the world about to discover about the mind of Hitler or the horrors of his regime? It, it certainly was a huge scoop. Now, they, they subjected the diaries to some tests, and the diaries passed three handwriting tests. The Times of London, the New, uh, News, Newsweek, and Stan engaged historians who examined the papers. And when they were convinced of their authenticity, the, mag, the German magazine Stan was the first one to release the news, and it bought the documents for some $6 million. And then they made their publication. But they had made a critical error. Fearing that the sensational story would leak, they had refused to allow German experts on World War II to examine the stories. So they had, it, they had them tested for handwriting, but didn't have them tested for historicity. And within two weeks, another German magazine exposed the Hitler diaries as grotesquely superficial fakes. They hadn't even done a good job of faking the diaries. They had used modern paper, they had used 1980s era ink, and it was riddled with historical inaccuracy. 
It was a huge fallout, what, what followed then, then. The editors of the Sunday Times and the Newsweek, and, and Newsweek lost their jobs. People at the stand lost their jobs. And the diaries themselves turned out to be the work of some famous forger called Conrad Kujo, who ended up in jail for what he had done. So all this unfolded as the world watched. One, one day, big news, we've got Hitler's diaries. Two weeks later, big news, this is a huge forgery. And then you see the fallout. That must have been a really exciting time. You know, and in the same way, the Bible is either the most important book in the world, because it claims to be the Word of God, or it's the most successful come in all of history. It is, after all, the best-selling book in the world by far. Every year, it's the best-selling book. In fact, in order to have such a title as a best-selling book, we have to ignore the sales of the Bible. It is also apparently the most solemn book in the world. People always steal Bibles. It's, it's interesting. If it, if, this, if it is not true, if the Bible is not true, then, then it's the most successful hoax. And someone, someone or some group of people are making a huge amount of money on a lie. The claim that distinguishes Christianity from other religions is the unique Christian teaching that God has entered history. That he has entered time itself. While other religions may speak of a divine force or an energy, and others may speak of a distant creator who made the universe, Christianity's claim is rooted in history. It's, it claims not only that God created time, and that's what Genesis tells us, that God created time and space and matter, and not only that God has been an active player in the lives of his people, which is what the Old Testament is, a narration of how God has worked in the lives of his people, but also that God himself became a human being like us through Jesus and history. This is a pretty huge claim. Driven by his love for us, God himself walked the earth uh, at a certain point in time. He lived and then he died in order to win grand victories for us over, over sin and over death. And then he came back from the dead. And this is the central teaching of the Bible. This is what the story is building up to. God himself entering time. And therefore, for Christianity, theological truth is based on historical truth. Theological truth is based on historical truth. If history shows that the Bible is wrong in its central claims, the, the stakes are very high for Christianity. If it can be shown that, uh, that Jesus did not enter time, he did not do the things that he claims to do, then it follows that Christian theology must be wrong. And in the same breath, if History confirms that the biblical story about Jesus did indeed happen, then Christi it follows that Christianity is true, particularly if it shows that, God, that, that, that Jesus died and came back from the dead. The implications of that are huge. It follows that Christianity is true in its claim. And if it's true in its claim, then what, would you, what you do with it becomes of ultimate importance. But the question remains, is it true? Is the Bible truth of fiction? Is it telling us a fancy made-up story by some really clever human beings? Or is it telling us the truth about who God is, what he's, what he's like, and what he's, he, uh, he's like in, uh, what he's done in history? And is there any way we can know? Now, I want us to do something here. Uh, it's, you can approach this question from, from different angles. And I want to approach this question from legal eyes, because I'm a lawyer, and that's how I, that's how I take in the world. And I, I want to do this because the area is so, the area of the, 
you know, reliability of the Bible is so broad. We can't cover every single aspect. We'll cover some of them. So what I want to do is to look at some of the facts, but also to, to, to think about how is it that we can think about these questions when they come to us. How are we to process them in our minds so that we can use that in order to process it in other, in other, in, in, you know, when, when we have questions that we're not going to address today. And the law has legal rules of evidence, which are, which, is, which are what the courts would use to determine what happened or what did not happen. And I want us to look at the authenticity of the Bible in this way. Now, when I was in law school, in my second year, I, my friend, we were, we were posted to a court. So we, we had to do what we called clinicals, which is pretty much working with uh, a judge or a magistrate in a criminal court and then in a civil court for about, uh, I think we did two weeks in a criminal court, no, a month, a month and a month. We did two months. So my friend and I were posted to this, to, to this court and we're very, we're very careful about which courts we picked. We wanted to go to the criminal court in the east of Nairobi where I come from because that's the place most notorious for having the worst kinds of criminals. So we wanted to hear the best stories in the court. So we went there and on the day we arrived, we, uh, the first day we arrived, it, we arrived in the middle of a case and the judge was hearing, the magistrate was hearing a defense of, uh, of a robbery with violence case and two boys had been charged with a robbery with violence. They were underage. They were under the age of 18. They'd been charged together with adults but because they were underage they were getting a separate trial because the rules of evidence that apply to them are different and even just the sentence would have to be different because they were underage. So we sat in through that and we had the we had the defense and we were spellbound. This 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 boys told a heartbending story. They said that what, uh, on the on the day they were arrested, they were on their way to their school. They were arrested early morning, before seven, I think. They were in their uniform and they were headed to their schools. They were going to boarding schools uh, about say 200 kilometers from Nairobi, and they're on their way to catch the bus to go to school because it was the beginning of school term. Um, and then there were riots on the street, and the police came and arrested them, and they threw them into the vehicle and took them to the police station and charged them with robbery and violence. Now, you've got to understand that this is something that actually happens back home. Sometimes they're just random raids on the streets, um, and the police would, would arrest people because they want a bribe. Sometimes they just want a bribe. Or sometimes some, there's just been a crackdown, and, some, and they've been told, we need you to do some more arresting because they haven't been doing their job, job properly. This is, these are things that happen. And so we were seated in court and thinking how horrible these boys should be in school how could they do this to them and my friend and I were just heartbroken I remember talking with her during, during the break time saying this is so wrong this is injustice you know until the magistrate gave us the court file she, I think she, she just thought let me educate this little girl so she gave us the court file and said read this court file and we read the court file and it turned out that these boys had not been arrested wearing their school uniform the reason we believe the school uniform story is because among the exhibits that were in the court was school uniform. So we thought clearly they had been arrested wearing this school uniform. But they hadn't. They had been carrying the school uniform in their bags. It was their getaway plan. They were to steal and then wear the school uniform and then run. It, they were, it, on, on one level it's sad because the adults were using them. But that is actually what was going on. They could not produce parents to say that they were on their way to school. Neither could they produce officials from schools to say that they had been registered in that school and that they were going to school. It just, there was very little evidence in their support. And I learned a huge lesson on that day. And that's the lesson of the humility of inquiry. You know, you, uh, um, 
it taught me how not to make up my mind before I have all the evidence. And I think that sometimes when it comes to the Bible, people make up their minds before they have all the evidence. It's like seeing a scene out of the movie, out of a movie. When you see one scene, you don't get the story uh, the whole, that the whole movie is telling. And sometimes that, this is how we treat the Bible. And so what I'm inviting you to do is to, to join me as we think about this and always to keep this in mind. Do not make up your mind before you've got all the evidence. Because this is how it pans out in our day. Uh, BBC or National Geographic or, or someone, they light on a bit of information. They do a documentary. Very well done. Pour millions of, 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 of dollars or pounds into, into it. And we take in this one bit of information and it forms our ideas about the Bible. I'm going to show you why this is problematic and how, they leave, how a lot of information has been left out from the things that, are, that the public is exposed to. And so this is just an, inquire, an invitation for you to walk through this with, with me. And so we're going to look at three areas very quickly. One, we're going to look at the text of the Bible, the reliability of the text itself. Then we're going to look at the message of the Bible, the reliability of the message that we have received in the Bible, and then we'll, uh, we'll speak a little about uh, a consideration of all the evidence. So, uh, the first one is the text of the, of the Bible. What is the evidence for the reliability of the text of the Bible? How can we know that what we have now is what, is what was initially recorded? This is very important. How can we know that what we have, if for instance we, we say that Matthew did write the book of Matthew, how can we know that what Matthew wrote then is what we have today? And then how can we know that what Matthew recorded actually happened? Was he, was he recording things that happened or did he record things that he just made up in his mind? Is there any reliable way of knowing and some people will say that you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. I don't know whether you've heard that one. Clearly the Bible was written by Christians, they were biased, and so you can't use the Bible to prove that what is written in the Bible is true, that you'd sort of be arguing in a circle. I've had that on myself. And I think that to, to think this way is to misunderstand how evidence works. Because if a man is accused, for instance, of, um, of breaking into a jewelry store and, and, and stealing, he could, if he said that his alibi was that he, he could not have been the one who did it, because at the time when the shop was broken into, he was having dinner with his girlfriend. With his girlfriend. You can't then say, because he was having dinner with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend is likely to lie for him, we are not going to consider this evidence. You can't do that. Because to do that would be to ignore the best evidence possible. What you do is you consider that evidence in light of the fact that you know that this is his girlfriend. And so you want some corroboration. You want to find out, did anybody see his car parked outside the restaurant where he says he was? Did he tell anybody else that he was going? Can the Waiters say that they saw them, you know. So you don't, you don't dismiss the information. So we can't begin by dismissing the Bible outright. What we want to do is we want to weigh the evidence, uh, you know, in the light of what we know. We want to ask ourselves, what does the Bible actually tell us? If we examine it, not as the inspired word of God, but as a historical record just like any other. Because it claims to be recording things that happened in history. What does it tell us if we examine it just like a historical record? Now, the Gospels, uh, which are the first four books in the Bible, which I'm, I'm going to focus on this one because they are the most controversial. Uh, uh, because they're the first four books of the Bible which contain the life story of Jesus. They were written very soon after the birth 
of Jesus Christ. Most, uh, the, con- the consensus, according to John Dixon, who's a historian of the New Testament in the University of Sydney, he says that the consensus of mainstream historians would be that they were all written within 30 and 65 years of Jesus' death. So usually how it is in the history, in the study of the Bible, there would be the extremist, the extremes on one side, who would say that the Bible was written, say, 10 years, uh, you know, much closer to Jesus' death. Then on the other hand, we'd have the extreme skeptics who'd say that I don't think anybody, anybody, any historian now claims that it was written after the first century because I'm going to explain why. But most mainstream historians would be in the middle. The, the dates would vary, but they would agree that the New Testament, the, I mean the four Gospels were written between 30 and 65 years after the death of Jesus Christ. Now you may say, you say that it was written too, I mean soon, very soon after the death of Jesus, and you may say 30 to 65 years, that's not very soon, that's quite long. 30 to 65 years, it's quite long. And the reason you, could, you would say that is because, you know, you're not historians, forgive me if there's any historian here, but we say that because you're not historians. Um, if 65 years is actually quite good. It's amazingly good for this period of time, for ancient history. It's not good for history in our day because we, we just record things as they go along. But for ancient history, it is very, very good. Has anybody here ever heard of Alexander the Great? Well, of course you have. The first, the first bit of information that we have recorded about Alexander the Great was written 120 years after his death. We don't have anything on Alexander the Great that was written before 120 years after his death. And this bit of information that was written in 120, after, uh, 120 years after he died is not even our most reliable source. Our most reliable source was written 400 years after Alexander the Dead, uh, the Great died. So the, most of the information you would have on Alexander the, the Great came from this document which was written 400 years after his death. This is how ancient history uh, works. I want you to just have a look at this, uh, this bit of evidence on the documentation for the New Testament. Now, Julius Caesar... Uh, was a was a Latin writer. He wrote some poems, I think, and some stories. He wrote in 100, between 144 BC. The earliest fragment or copy we've got of his work was, it has been dated AD 900. That the time span between when he wrote and the earliest fragment is 100 years, and we only have 10 manuscripts of that. Plato. Some of you here can quote Plato. He wrote 427 to 347 BC. The earliest fragment we've got also was AD 900, and the time span is 12 years, and we only have seven manuscripts of what Plato wrote. The closest to the Bible is Homer's Iliad, which was written 900 BC. The earliest fragment we've got is from 400 BC. The time span is 500 years from when it was written to the earliest copy we've got, and we've got 600 and 43 manuscripts. Compare that with the New Testament. It would say that it was written between AD 40 to AD 100. The earliest fragment we've got has been dated AD 125. Actually, this fragment was found by an Oxford, uh, by an Oxford professor 
in the 1900s. And before then, many people had claimed that the book of John, what could not have been written in the first century AD, they would date it much later in the second century AD. But when they found this fragment, AD 125, they had to revise the dates of the writing of the, of the, of the Gospels, because if by AD 125 we already had copies of the Gospels circulating, that means it must have been written Earlier. And so historians have had to revise the writing of the date and they now agree that all, all of the four Gospels were written within the first century. And so we've got, they were all written within the first century. We've got the earliest fragment, AD 125. The time span is between 25 to 50 years. Even if you give 50 years for those people who date this fragment later. So some people date it earlier and some people date it later. It still compares very well with the other time spans. And, and, on the number of manuscripts you've got, we've got more than 24,000, with more than 5,000 of these ones being in the original Greek. Others are in Latin and other languages. And the thing is, uh, so we've got 24,000 manuscripts comparing with the number of manuscripts you've got. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean? What is, how does this help us? When we've, when we've got 24,000 manuscripts of a document that... Um, that, that have been scattered over the over different geographical regions, it means that you can get a very good idea of what was originally written. Because you, you can get the, the manuscripts from Egypt and then get the manuscripts from Palestine and compare them. If they say the same thing, then it means that they came from a common copy, a copy that agrees. And that's how we know that what we've got is what had, has been passed on. Additionally, even if we didn't have the New Testament, we could, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament from quotations from letters of the early church fathers, except about 20 verses. So from the, uh, the early Christians who began to write from Clement going on up to the, four, uh, up to the 400s, we can reconstruct the Bible that they used because of, they would write letters to each other and they would quote scriptures in those letters. They would have writings in which they would quote scriptures. If we got all of those together, the ones that we've got today, we can reconstruct the entire New Testament that they used back then except for about 20 verses. This is what has caused F.F. Bruce to say that there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. This is not a theological statement. This is a historical uh, statement. There is no body of ancient literature that is this well attested. It really is extraordinary how well preserved the records have been. And so... I want us to think about something else as well. This is First Corinthians. Now, the Gospels were written uh, were written between well, uh, the dates of the main, mainstream historians of the earliest will be in the 60s. This would be the Book of Mark in the 60s. But First Corinthians, First Corinthians was actually written before the Gospels were written. This was written about 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ, and this is this is agreed upon. These are agreed upon dates. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is Paul speaking, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on that day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
I want you to hear the audacity in that statement. He's pretty much daring them. He's saying, listen, he appeared to Peter, and he appeared to the twelve, and then he appeared to me. He also appeared to 500 people, some of whom are alive, and some of whom have died. If you want to find the ones who are alive and ask them, go ahead and do it. Now, most, uh, most scholars will agree that what, Peter, what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15, these are not actually his words. What he's doing is reciting an early Christian creed. So if you can see, I tried to, to, uh, to color them so you can see just how easy it is to commit to memory the things that he said. That Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and raised in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas. Then he appeared to more than the 500. Then he appeared to me. What he's doing is reciting an early Christian creed, which some scholars have dated to as close as three years after Jesus' death. And the reason they say that is because he, Paul here is saying that, other than for you know, the rhyme, and you can clearly see that it's clear in the original language, also Paul says that he's passing on to them what he first received. And Paul later in Galatians talks about how, what he received. He couldn't have received this from, from uh, he, could, he could only have received this from the apostles when he went to Jerusalem and at about that time, very soon after Jesus died. So this could be something, a record that we've got uh, that, we've got that goes as far back as three years uh, after Jesus' death. But then, this is, uh, we, need, we need something else that, that in law we call corroborative evidence which is evidence that supports. So we've got this evidence that it's been, well, uh, it's been well maintained. But how do we know that what it says is actually true? Has anybody else written about this? Do we, can they corroborate what the writers of the Gospels uh, or of the New Testament wrote? Um, and there, there are quite a number of records that we've got. We've got records from Tacitus, who was a historian from the first century, Josephus as well, uh, record from the Talmud, which are writings of the Jewish or, or of the Jews who are not very uh, friendly towards the Christian cause, from Pliny the Younger and others. I don't have time to, to, to quote for you the, the quotes themselves. I can give them to you if you want. But I just want to read this uh, sort of summative statement, and this is by Edwin Yamauchi. He says that even if we didn't have the first um, if we didn't, even if we did not have the New Testament or any other Christian writings, we would be able to conclude the following from Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, Pliny the Younger, and others. We will know that first Jesus was a Jewish teacher. We would know that many people believe that he performed healings and exorcism. We would know that some people believe that he was the Messiah, that he was rejected by the Jewish leaders, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius, that despite his shameful death, his followers believed that he was still alive and that they spread beyond Palestine so that there were multitudes of them in Rome by A.D. 64. And that all kinds of people from the city and countryside, men and women, slave and free, worshipped him as God. This is significant because none of this is coming from the Bible and none of this is coming from Christian writing. All of this is, all of this is coming from historians, most of whom were hostile to the Christian cause, but we would still know this to be historical Fact. I don't have time to talk to you about the archaeological finds that support the Bible. I also don't have time to talk to you about the correspondence, how, how well the New Testament writers, has, especially the Gospels, correspond with the details of first century Palestine. This is an incredible one to look into. If you have some time, do look into it for yourself. It appears that they get they get the names right, the dates right, the places right, even the things they're expected to have gotten wrong, they get right, which 
only shows that they must have been living at that time when those things were going on. They, it's, an, it's, it's just amazing, especially the names, just the, the frequency of the names that appear in the New Testament. Peter, James, John, Judas, were those names that were used in the first century in this way. Names change over a period of time. Names are popular now, then other names are popular then. It keeps changing. We don't notice, but it does actually happen. And this is one of the ways to verify. And the New Testament writers just kept getting it right. It's just amazing. But, other than for the text of the New Testament, people also say that I don't think the Bible is reliable because uh, the Bible is sexist. I can't trust what it says about women. The Bible has all these records about violence and that I can't, I can't trust. They just cannot be relied upon. And then um, other, other people say that uh, there are numerous contradictions in the Bible. Uh, and therefore I can't trust it. And that, so basically, they're not objecting to the text of the Bible. They're objecting to the message of the Bible. And I, I honestly don't have time to go into that. There are others who say, we cannot believe it. And this is it's quite widespread. We can't believe it because it records supernatural events. It has stories of people walking on water. It has stories of someone coming back from the dead. Surely this is not fact. This must be fiction. This must be mythological uh, stories being passed on to us. Uh, and that's, that's an interesting statement to make. It really is an interesting statement to make because when you think about it, there is, it's, it would be, um, pre-commitment to a worldview that causes you to say that. Because the only way you say that the Bible is not true because it has supernatural events is if you have already decided that supernatural events are an impossibility. Now that's a claim that needs to be defended. It's not a given. It needs to be defended. And there are good counter-arguments against, uh, against that. So, I, what I would say to this, since I don't have time to get into it, is I would again speak about the humility of inquiry. The Bible is, as somebody pointed out, it's a complicated book. It's a complex book. It's a collection of 66, it's a collection of 66 books <coughs> written by 40 different authors over a time span of 1600 years. It was written in three different languages in three different continents. What this should do, when the, what a realization of this should do to us is it should humble us. It should humble us that we approach it with humility, realizing that there is context here that we need to bear in mind as we speak, uh, as we speak about it and as we think about it. And we cannot be sure we have understood what it is saying until we have borne the context in mind. In the same way, as an African entering into the English context, I have got to humble myself and try and understand your culture so that I can communicate what I want to communicate to you. Back home, for instance, I can be an hour late to an event and it doesn't mean anything to anybody. I, honestly, but here if I'm an hour late, I'm communicating disrespect. Back home I'm not, not at all. It's not a big deal. I, people will not even be upset if I'm an hour late. But here, it just can't work. I've got to humble myself and realize that we don't see time in the same way. It's just not, it, and because I would be thinking, if, if I insisted on living my way and seeing things through my African eyes here, I would walk around offending people without meaning to offend them, you know. And so we've got to approach the Bible with humility as well, because there's a lot of context things that we need to, to think about. Um, before I think about, uh, I talk about considering all the evidence, let me talk about the canon, because it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, interesting collection. So we've got 66 books. How did we choose this 66 books? these 66 books and why how can we say that a book written by human beings would be the word of God at all I, 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 was, I, was, I was doing some research on this on the canon and it caused me to really 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 think because I read, I read the canon 
And I was like, God, this process, the process of choosing the, the books in the New Testament, uh, involved a lot of deliberation, a lot, a lot of talking. It was not automatic. It wasn't. It wasn't automatic. People didn't just say, oh, we just know which books are going to be in the Bible. They thought about it. They argued about it and they agreed about it. They had a criteria and they measured things against the criteria that they had. And I thought, this is messy. Why didn't we just get a book, bam, you know, just these are the books of the Bible, you know. I, would, we, would that be more trustworthy? And then I, I realized that I was thinking of the Bible in the wrong way. Now, the Bible does not make the claim, for instance, that the Quran makes. The Quran claims to be the Word of God, sort of almost supernaturally given to us, uh, it's, uh, without any error, without any human input. It's like dictation straight from God uh, to Muhammad. It was all written down, and we have a history actually doesn't back up that because Muhammad did not write it down. He just recited it, and then it was compiled later. But that's the claim. This is not the biblical claim. It, that, it has never been the claim of the Bible that it was this sort of kind of supernatural book just passed on dictation from God to us. And as I was thinking about, about this, it, and then, it then hit me. You know what? This is exactly like the God of the Bible. It completely fits in with the God he is. Because think about it. Jesus comes, uh, proclaims his message, and then at the end, tells, gives out the great commission. He tells the disciples, I'm going to send you out. I want you guys to go and spread the gospel. Be witnesses, evangelists to everybody. And I've always thought, this God should have done his own witnessing for himself. It certainly would have been neater. You know, we mess it up. You know, we, when we do evangelism, we mess, we mess it up. We say the wrong words. We are not perfect in how we live our lives. But he still invites us to do evangelism together with him. And it's the same thing he did with the writing of the Bible. He used people's knowledge. He used people's personalities. He used people where they were and used them to write, to write the Bible. So I don't think that if you believe in the God of the Bible, it presents any problem that he has chosen to work through human beings. In what he does. We've got a God who's got a very high view of humanity. He did, after all, become a human being. He doesn't say, I cannot use you, you will just make it worse. He says, I know it's going to be complicated if you're involved, but I want you to come along. In the same way, fathers, so if you're cutting grass, you probably do it much sooner if your son doesn't help you, but you want your son to come along and help you. You get it done eventually. It's going to be a longer process. You probably have to take more breaks. But you know, it's just much better than the relationship is built as you go through. But then going on now to the facts of the canon, people say, it's a very common thought, that the Council of Nicaea, or some council, sat down and chose the books that are in the Bible. This is not true. This is not factual at all. Council of Nicaea never considered the books to be included in the New Testament. They, they wrestled with the, Christ, with the Christology, whether Christ is a human being, whether he's, um, whether he's God. It did not, uh, it did not wrestle with the Bible. The canon of the Bible was not agreed upon by a council. It wasn't. There was a synod in the three, in the, three, in the late 300, 392, synod of Kiko that sat down and pronounced what the canon was. But that was not even a binding pronou- pronouncement on the church. And what that pronouncement was was merely acknowledging what was already the Bible. What happened to the Bible is it, it developed over a period of time. And the, and the, and early Christians in the West and in the East, so there would be in, in the 200, 300 or two factions of the church, there would be the church in the West and the church in the East, 
about the church in Egypt to such other places in the church in Rome and, and these other places, they almost automatically agreed on 20 of the 27 books. Not sitting in a council, just the ones they deemed to be authoritative. Because they had a certain criteria they were following. They said, now, we're trying to figure out what is reliable. We will accept the testimony of eyewitnesses or careful historians. If anybody was an eyewitness, we'll take their record. If they were careful historians, we'll take their record. Which makes sense. You don't, you pick eyewitnesses or people who are not there telling the story. Second, they were, so down the, uh, apostle, uh, the, uh, the criteria was called apostolicity, and then they considered whether it agreed with the doctrine. Now, if someone starts, the, the, the message was that Jesus came, that Jesus died, and that Jesus resurrected. If somebody wrote a book that denied any of those three, then obviously it wasn't included in the canon, because it was denying something that had happened historically. And then ultimately, they then decided if a book had continued usage and acceptance, they accepted it. Now, the BBC documentaries talk about uh, the Gospel of Thomas and this other Gnostic Gospel, and they're a little uh, disturbing in how they portray it. They're talking, we have found this new Gospel. That is not true. These Gospels were always known. About, they're always known. What they have found was a new copy of an old forgery. That we, that, that, that we had. So we had always had this copy. Secondly, the reason those gospels were excluded is because all of them were written in the 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, some of them even in the 5th century. And so they were excluded because they were not near to the source. You don't, you don't, uh, you, you do not give up the early sources for the later sources. And also, they were not gospels in the manner of speaking, because the gospel is a narration of a story. This is the understanding of the a gospel as a genre of writing. That is what it is. These were not gospels. A lot of them were theological statements that were advancing ideas of sects within Christianity, such as, for instance, the Gnostic gospel. And it's interesting, when you call a famous figure, after a certain number of years, Legends begin to come up about this, uh, this past. For instance, even with the Gospel of Peter, it's very legendary. It was written at a time period when legends would begin to come up. And when he tells the story of Jesus coming out from the, from the grave, it describes Jesus being so tall that his head goes up into the clouds. You know, it's legendary, of course. This is not, this, you read it and it reads like legend. So they were excluded, right? They were not excluded by a council, no. They were, they were excluded by Christians, just as they read them, you know, like, no, this is later, this doesn't sound like a true story. They excluded them on those basis. And I think they were excluded on a good basis. And so none of them, none of the Gnostic Gospels, nobody thinks that they were written in the first century. Usually second century going forward. But, as, uh, so, in conclusion, this is what I want to, uh, I'd like to, to, to get you to think about. When you think about the Bible, you, the thing to do is to, co- to, to think of it as a collection of evidence. We've got the historical manuscripts, we've got the, uh, we've got the corroborative evidence, we've got, uh, you know, we've got the, the story about the, uh, what is it called, the canon, and you think about it as a collection of that evidence. You see, a judge can never say, I don't want to consider, um, there's evidence I don't want to consider. Say, for instance, if uh, someone was said to have killed someone by stabbing him, and there is before the court a video recording of this man stabbing the other person, uh, the judge cannot, if, if the defense is, hey, Mr. Judge, you've got an additional bit of evidence, the judge cannot say, oh, 
no, I don't want any more evidence. I'm done. I've got a video recording. Uh, I've got many more cases to hear. I just can't take this evidence. If the defense can show that the evidence is relevant, the judge has to listen. It, just has, it could be a medical expert saying that actually this guy didn't die from the wounds, He died from a aneurysm or something. You know, it could be unrelated. He died from something unrelated from the stabbing. So you have to consider the evidence. And this last two bits of evidence, for me, they're not historical, but they are huge. They are really huge. And one of them is the explanatory power of the Bible. And I'm talking about the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Because according to me, life, and the way I see it, life needs explaining. Why are we here? And where did we come from? Why is it that I find within me greatness on one hand and weakness at the other hand? Sometimes I do really great things and other times I let myself down and I let the people I love down very, very deeply. Why, why is it that this is the case? And is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for the world? I look at the world and there's so much injustice and a lot of pain. Why is it here? Can anything be done about it? Is there any hope for myself? And I find that the Bible gives to me the most coherent explanation for the universe as it is. It gives me the most coherent answers to these questions. It says that God created the world and us, and he created us to be in relationship with him and to be expressors of his amazing image in this universe. And he wanted us to be in a loving relationship with him, but that we have become separated from him by our wrong thoughts and actions. But this is not the end of the story. Jesus comes into this situation to bring hope and we can look forward to a time because Jesus died and paid for our sins. If we place our trust in him, we can look forward to a time when all things will be made right. When I will become the person I have always known I'm capable of becoming. And when all the injustice and the pain in the world will be made right. This story makes sense of the universe for me. I haven't found another story that makes sense of the universe in this way. So the, the, the immense explanatory power of the Bible is also a huge bit of evidence in its support. And also its impact on individuals. I've seen people change by reading the Bible. Bakatoka, we, one of the people we met was um, some guy called Tom Tarrant. And Tom Tarrant was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And he was arrested uh, who was a member of a terrorist group with the Ku Klux Klan and was arrested while going to bomb a, Jew, a, Jew, a Jew's house, you know, in those days, in the, uh, civil, I mean, in the civil rights time. And he was arrested and taken to jail by the FBI, escaped from jail, was arrested again, went to jail. And while he was in jail, somebody gave him a Bible. And he began to read this Bible. And it completely changed him. And for decades now, Tom Tarrant has been working as a reconciler. He's been the head of the C.S. Lewis Institute up to, uh, I think, a year ago in the U.S. And has worked in this way. At one point, he went to black people, who he, black leaders uh, in Washington, who he used to hate with all his, you know, with all his being before. And he humbled himself before them and told them, I need to learn from you how to understand the world from your eyes, given what you have gone through. And they took him on and they taught him over years. And I thought, when you, when you see someone changed in that way, and when they tell you that the thing that changed them was the Bible, I think you've got to take that seriously. You've got to take that seriously. People... People, people say, oh, you said the Bible changes people. How, how is that possible? How can a book change someone? And I, I was thinking about that and I thought, you know, you know why we can say that? We can say that because to be loved 
is to be made strong. And the Bible communicates the most wonderful love story. A story of how God has loved us enough to give himself for our sake. I've got a friend who adopted some two kids who were, who were very neglected. Uh, the girl was three and the boy was one. And because she's a very close friend of mine, I mean, I'm in her life. I got to see the change that her love brought into the lives of these kids, these children. The boy particularly was not hitting his development stages. He had just given up on life. He would lie on a bed all day without even bothering to cry. He had, he had been neglected for so long, he stopped hoping that someone would take care of him. And as I watched him change over time and watched him become become a child with demands, with strong opinions. I, it, was, it was wonderful to see how love had transformed this child. And I think it is because as we read the Bible, we begin to understand the love that God has for us. I think that is why the Bible changes lives in the, in the wonderful ways that, 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 that it does. And so, considering all this bit of evidence, the historical evidence, the you know the when we read the Bible in context and honestly and humbly try to understand what it's telling us, when you consider its explanatory power and its impact on individuals, I will say that the evidence shows that we can trust the Bible. I think we'll pray and then uh, we'll have reactions. I think we're like five minutes for for reactions. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you have loved us and chosen to reveal yourself through the Bible. Thank you, God, that you care enough that we know you, that you've gone to the trouble of giving us a book that is reliable, that we can place our hope in, Lord. I pray, I pray, God, for those among us who are Christians, I pray that when we open the Bible to read it, that we would hear your voice, Lord, that it wouldn't be empty, that exercise wouldn't be empty, but that we will see the love of God and experience you as you are, as we read the Bible, and that it will change us, that it will instruct us, that it will be a lump unto our feet that just guides us in what we do. I pray, Lord, for those who are here who do not trust the Bible, who do not know it, Lord, and I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to them as you have, as you have revealed yourself to many people over the ages through the Bible. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.